That looked like fun. Maybe that's a tradition we should start whenever somebody gets up to preach. We all stand up and say, yeah, bring it, bring it, bring it. We're ready. So, blessings on you, though, as you preach internationally in other places. For those of you who don't know where Ghana is, it's in West Africa. And so, Jonathan gets to return there from time to time to build on relationships that are already in place. Well, last week, Nikki Hess helped us to start a new sermon series that we're calling Family Matters. And so, today I want to continue that by looking at marriage. But I'm going to talk about it in a way that I hope is helpful to people who aren't married as well. Um, I know sometimes if you, maybe if you see marriage listed as a focus of a, mari- of a sermon or a series, those of you who aren't married or who were previously married might think, well, what does that have to do with me? But as I thought about what I wanted to say this morning, it felt to me like a number of the things that I want to talk about or highlight are things that apply to us in the seasons of our lives when we're single or those of us who are single that it applies, the things I want to say apply to that. So, pay attention to things I say. I hope that I'm uh, sensitive to that as I talk. Um, But I do this morning, I want to focus our attention on marriage, but in a broader context of what God wants for us in our relationships. As I thought about marriage, I thought probably the sermon more than any others, I have many stories to tell, and it shouldn't be hard for me to think of stories about marriage to tell you. Um, And I just did want to say that for those of you who think of marriage uh, as the glorious pinnacle of relational life, I should tell you that it's not always like that. Um, There have been times where Anita and I have set aside a date night where we're going to be together and we've planned that we're looking forward to it. We go to the restaurant that we've picked out that we're going to, where we want to have dinner together. We kind of have an evening laid out together. And we get there and we find out there's an hour-long wait and we realize, oh yeah, this is a, we wanted to come here because it's a popular restaurant. That means other people wanted to as well, and neither of us thought to call ahead and make any arrangements for reservations or get on their list. And so, because we're both organized people, we are tempted to be irritated with each other because the other person surely would have thought of that, and it was kind of their responsibility. I also remember when we were in uh, an earlier season of family life, we were in uh, the, the Philadelphia, the greater Philadelphia area. We were going to church at Ambler Mennonite Church. And our kids were about uh, one, four, and seven. So they were grade schoolers, or yeah, elementary school age. And Nita was home with our children in that season of our life together. And so Sundays, and especially time after church, was a time she really looked forward to as a time to have conversations with adults. I mean, all day, all week long, she's talking to children and, you know, the fr- frustrations that come with that sometimes. And so on Sundays, as a connector, somebody who's, as if you know Nita, you know she's a very powerful connector, just enjoys people very much. And so Sunday mornings were a chance to connect with adults and have adult conversations. And I was more tuned into, I mean, I, was, I had plenty of people time during the week in my work and, and what have you. So I was more aware that we had kids who were one and four and seven and who after church were hungry and kind of punchy from having sat still for a while and were inclined to, you know, run around and get in trouble, be nasty to each other, and were whiny and wanted to go. So, I was trying to corral three children, and I probably should have realized that this is what my wife dealt with all week long and had a little more respect and appreciation for that. But I would get a little frustrated with her because I would think, you know, we got to get these kids home. We got to, you know, this is not the time to stand and linger and just have this go on and on. And as I asked her for permission to talk to you about this, she reminded me that I actually eventually thought of a solution, which was to, you know, dads are a little slower, I guess, to bring food along, snacks along to, for the kids so we could just go to the car and give them something to eat if they're hungry and bring books along. So eventually we made our peace with that arrangement, and so I would take the kids back out to the car 
and we would have food to eat, we'd have books, and we were all set, and we could weather the time that Nita was catching up with adults. But that was something we had to, to work out and work through. In a related way, one of the things that is probably true for your marriage, just like ours, there's one of us who is a little more punctual than the other. I think in almost every marriage, one or the other is a little more punctual, a little more concerned about time. You could probably guess which is which if you know me and Nita. Um, I'm the one who's more punctual. I pay more attention to what time we said we were going to be somewhere. And for Nita, often the time we said we would be or that we were going to leave to be there is the time she starts thinking about getting ready to go to be there. And so we're often kind of misaligned on timing. And I see some of you smiling, so I'm guessing you know what I'm talking about here. Well, that was a source of some level of frustration for me for quite a long time. And then I realized one day, I guess the Holy Spirit finally, maybe I was just finally listening. And I realized that as somebody who grew up in Central America and in Latin culture, when I was a, a boy, I imagined that I was going to grow up and marry a Latina, a, a woman from a, the Latin culture where time is a much more negotiable matter. If you've been in Latin America, you know that's true. And the Holy Spirit, I think, just said to me, Carl, just realize that you, you grew up and married your dream wife. You married a Latina, somebody who's very relaxed about time. And I thought, well, that's helpful, actually. That is very helpful. And I also realized that one of the things that, I mean, I know my wife is a, good, a woman of goodwill and somebody who um, doesn't mean me har- intend to do me harm. And so I thought, well, there's got to be a way to frame this in a way that makes sense in her mind. And I realized that one of the things that makes Nita such a wonderful person is that when she's with you, she's with you. She's dialed into what you're saying. She's paying attention to who you are and what you're sensing and feeling. And she is so thoroughly with the people that she's with that she doesn't watch the clock and say, oh, I have another appointment. I have another person over there that I'm not with right now that I'm supposed to go be with. And that is actually helpful to me, too, because oftentimes I'm the one that she's with. And I realize that when she's with me, she does the same thing. She's often late to other things because she's dialed into me when she's with me. So, probably some of you know some of these, these dynamics from your own marriage, but I just thought I would tell you that these are things to be worked out. And I'm, in just a minute, I want to point out that that's one of, the, one of the purposes I think God has for joining us in marriages, but also in close relationships that are enduring and that last over a long time. But the broader question I wanted to talk about this morning is the question of what does God, as I thought about this in a bigger perspective, the question is, what does God want for me or what does God want from me in my relationships? What does God want for me or what does God want from me in my relationships? And I realize that we've actually been talking about that in some ways. We've talked about our mission statement because I think the answer to that question falls fairly neatly into the three kind of pieces of our mission statement. There's an up piece, an in piece, we've talked about this before here, and an out piece. So with our mission statement, we've said that it is enjoying God, which is, if you think about it, an upward focus. I know God isn't all up there, but that, you know, for the purposes of the illustration. So there's an up focus. There's also loving each other, which is in, an in focus, an inward loving within the community of faith. And then there's an out focus, of blessing our neighbors. And I think the same thing is true of what God has in mind for us to experience in all of our relationships. So let's look at those three in turn, and then we'll talk specifically about marriage. The first one, I think in in terms of our relationships, what God is looking for, what God wants for us and from us is surrender to Jesus, a surrender to Jesus that we might think of as our up focus in all of our relationships. And what I mean by that is Uh, Well, surrendering to Him, turning away from the sin in our lives, and yielding to His authority, coming under His authority in our lives. 
so that He can mold and form us in character, in emotional health, as some of us have been learning in the Sunday school hour, but also to be just to be grounded in Jesus, that this comes first in all of our relationships, because I firmly believe that the true source of peace and joy in our lives comes, comes from this, comes from being surrendered to the Lord Jesus and letting the Holy Spirit fill us and transform us as His followers. I think this is also important to keep in mind with marriage and parenting as well, because as Nikki pointed out to us last week, in other words, marriage and childbearing were never meant to be ultimate in our lives. They were never meant to be the, the ultimate thing we focus on, never meant to be an idol in our lives. I mean, it's wonderful to aspire to be joined to another person in marriage, to be a parent, but we need to remember that those things were never designed to be the ultimate focus of our lives. The problem is that if they become that way, they become a kind of a weird sort of self-worship if my marriage and my family is really the only thing, the primary things that I fo- thing I focus on. I think the goal for the Lord in our relationships is to be uh, to, incur- to, to be in a relationship where people are encouraging you in this aspect, encouraging you and me to, to grow in our surrender to Jesus, grow in our maturity in Him, and grow in our emotional health together. So, I think it starts with an upward focus of surrender to Jesus. I think the second thing is connection. The second thing I think God wants for us and wants from us in relationship is connection. This is the inward focus, inward in terms of inward focus on the community. We are designed, as Nikki said last week, we're designed to be, to live our lives in a network of friendship and family, a network of companionship and intimacy where people know who we are and know what our journey is about, and we, we know that about other people, so that we're loving and serving each other in a community, a network of, of, of relationships. For many of us, that includes a marriage relationship for at least a season of our lives. And thankfully, for many of us, it's a long season of our lives, but for not, not for all of us. Some, for some, it's a very short season because of an illness or an unexpected death or something like that. And others, it's more of a, a medium uh, length of time. Sometimes relationships end or fail or broken. But the truth is that we all live periods of our lives, sometimes long periods of our lives, where we're not, we're not married without a spouse, or we're separated from our spouse because they're traveling or they're ill or they're at a distance for, some, for one reason or another. And so, we all need a broader network of friends, a broader network of people that, that stay in touch with us. I mean, I know that I need ongoing encouragement from other men. There's a, a particularity to the journey of being a man in our time and a, a follower of Jesus as a man that other guys understand in a way that my wife does not. And so, I need to, uh, I think it's, guys seem to need to be a little more intentional about this. Women seem to, uh, this seems to unfold a little more naturally for women. Uh, so, I think it's really, but it's important for both of us to stay connected to other people who can encourage us in our, in our walk as a man or a woman, as a husband or a wife, as a dad or a mom, somebody who shares our interests, what have you something like that. I know that one of the, one of the things that's uh, kind of geeky fun for me is that my sons who are now out of state from me, don't live close by, they used to be at home and we shared interest in watching sports. We'd watch football, basketball, but now they're out of state so we can't watch together. So, we have a, a little text thread, which Nita thinks is kind of cute, that while I'm watching a football game, I'll text Dan and I'll, I'll text the two of them and I'll say, wow, did you see that play? And I get a reply back, yeah, I can't believe it. 
or we'll text and say, wow, we didn't really play very well in that first half. I hope we do better in the second half. It's a way that we stay in touch with each other around a shared interest and try to bridge the distance between us. Last week, Nikki very helpfully pointed out to us that Jesus redefines who our family is. Jesus says in the passage that she referred to that um, uh, our, Jesus says, my, brother, my brothers and my sisters and my mother are the ones who do the will of God. That's who's my primary family. Your connection to the people of God is meant to be your primary point of connection, whether you're an individual or a married couple, regardless of what stage of life that we're in. And I want to suggest to you that I think God provides us with this connection for two main reasons. There's probably others if you think about it, but two main reasons that I think God gives us each other. One is for our joy. And there's nothing that's more deeply satisfying in your life than a deep friendship with another person, maybe with your spouse, with other people. And if you know that you've had uh, soulmate kinds of friends, there's a deep kind of satisfaction to being connected with and sharing your journey with other people. And that's certainly part of what God has in mind for us. But I think God also gives us relationships and each other, not just for our joy, but also for our formation to mold us and to shape us. It's one of the primary ways that God uh, reaches into our lives and shapes us if we will let Him. Our long-term close relationships are the main thing that God uses to challenge us, to stretch us, and to form us in different ways. And you heard that in some of the stories that I told you at the beginning. I recently read a book by a marriage counselor who says, nobody is ready for marriage. Marriage makes you ready for marriage. Now, I think he just wrote that to be kind of clever and get your attention. What he means is that you get ready for marriage as you are married. In other words, if you, as you let the, uh, the tensions in your marriage mold and form you as a person, that shapes you into being the, uh, a good marriage partner. He says that we often get married for the wrong reasons. People get married for the wrong reasons because we haven't matured enough for the right reasons to exist yet in our lives. And it's only as we grow and mature that we develop into good marriage partners in a, in a full com- and complete way. And what he says is that facing those failings and those wrong reasons are sometimes the very things that, um, that shape us, that, that move us into maturity. So, for example, one couple he talks about, he names them Bill and Joan. He says, a couple I talked to, Bill and Joan, had some wrong reasons for marrying each other. One, they both had low self-esteem. They both kind of thought they were worthless, and so they were looking for marriage to kind of validate them and give them a sense of value. Bill was afraid of being lonely. Joan feared meeting the world as a single person. Bill needed someone to care for him, and Joan needed someone to care for He says these are the wrong reasons for people to marry each other. But he says if you're willing to be honest about those things, if you're willing to face them honestly with each other, those are the very things that can draw you to each other. As you understand how you've been shaped by your past and how you've struggled as a result, our failings and our wrong reasons can be the very things that help us to polish off the parts of ourselves that need to be polished off for us to fit together well for a a healthy and long-standing marriage. So what he says is that as you're married to your spouse, one of your main tasks is to coordinate with that polishing process, the the normal polishing process of a long-term intimate relationship, learning to say, I'm sorry, 
learning to forgive rather than holding grudges, learning how to recover from arguments, learning how to give up some of your selfishness, and learning how to tolerate intense intimacy where, where you're fully known by another person and where you fully know them. It's a kind of a refining fire, you might say, that produces in our lives tenderness and generosity and compassion. And I think this is true in a particular way in marriage because there's a pressure on that relationship, a commitment and a pressure there, an intensity to it. But I think it's also true of long-term friendships that we have with other people. We don't always like our long-term good friends. They don't always please us or do the things that make us happy. We need to learn all of these skills in that setting as well. It's just often not quite as pressurized as a marriage relationship is. So, in, uh, in the journey with, in, in my marriage, the stories that I told you, I needed to learn that the world wasn't all about me and that our marriage was not all about me either. Some of it was about who Nita was and how, how to give expression to who she was. Her sense of time was important and valuable. It wasn't wrong just because it was different from mine. And learning to, for me to set aside my selfishness about how I wanted things to function after church with our young kids or when we go to a restaurant or those kind of things, those are the kind of things that come up to, in conversation and allow us, allow me to be shaped by that process. It sounds to me a lot like the process of discipleship, honestly. It sounds like my experience of it is that this is one of the ways the Holy Spirit has been at work in my life, and God has definitely used my marriage to polish off a lot of the selfishness in my heart and in my, in my habits, I guess you would say. So, for example, whenever, whenever I'm hurt or we misunderstand each other, one of my impulses is to withdraw from Nita, to open up some distance, and I want to sulk, and I want to, because I know I'm right, and I want her to feel the pain of my righteousness, and you can guess how well that works. Uh, but because I'm married to her, because I want my marriage to her to flourish, I am committed, I am committed to setting that aside. At least, I mean, I, maybe I step into that for a moment or for a while, or maybe I say to her, I don't, I, I'm not ready to talk about this tonight. Can we talk about this tomorrow? I'm, I will talk to you about it, but I can't, I'm not ready to do that right now. But I'm committed to having that conversation with her and to working things out because I want our marriage to flourish and I want to love her well times that I've been tempted by pornography, and some of you know what this is like, when you're tempted by pornography or things that take your attention and energy away from your, your spouse. Part of what helps me to, has helped me not to do that and to turn away from it is that I, I value my relationship with Nita. I don't want to destroy that relationship. And so, being married has helped me to keep on track in an area of my life where I might not, it might be harder for me to do that otherwise. Another difference that's, help, that's been helpful to me is that um, Nita is much a more generous person than I am. So when we have extra money that comes in, which happens from time to time, we get an extra $1,000 that we hadn't expected or hadn't budgeted for. And my, my thought is, oh, well, we've been waiting to buy a new appliance or we've been waiting to do a special, you know, a special trip or a project. This is perfect because now we can do that thing that we've been waiting to do. Or I want to just save it so that I, we're better prepared for a rainy day. Anita's first impulse is always to give the money away. Just give it away. She said, and her logic, it's, it makes sense. Uh, she says, we were not expecting that money anyway. We live fairly comfortably. This is extra money. There are plenty of people around us who need it much more than we do. Let's give it away. And so we've, that's, that's been a conversation with us. And I've become a more generous person as a result of being married to a woman, a woman who has gifted in giving. Now, 
I, maybe I'm painting too dark a picture and leaning too heavily on the formation part of it, so I don't want you to misunderstand that, uh, as I said, God has given us each other broadly, but also in marriage for our joy and our formation. And if you know my wife, you know also that it's been a joy to be married to someone who's gifted and warm and gracious and thoughtful, and she's enriched my life considerably because of those things. Somebody who shares my interest in, in reading and in travel, in good conversations with other people, all of those things has deeply enriched my life as well. So I don't want to undersell that piece of it. I just think that sometimes we sort of over-glamorize and we, we think of the problems and the challenges that we have as somehow from the enemy or from, you know, some other place, when in fact those are the very things I think that form, and mature, form the character of Christ in us and bring us to full maturity in Him. So I think God gives us our relationships, uh, or what God wants for us in our relationships is surrender to Jesus, connection to each other, but then thirdly, to bless our neighbors. Bless our neighbors, we've talked about that. To bless our neighbors in whatever stage of life we're in. I think our marriages and our friendship networks ought to also have an outward focus, just like our congregation should and does so that we're not entirely inward focused. And one of the questions that we ask in our marriages or in our friendship groups is, what does God, how does God wanna work through us to bless other people? How might God wanna work through us to bless other people? Who are we connecting with? Who are we running into at this season of our lives? We live our lives in seasons and stages and you're, you're encountering different people as you move through the seasons of your life. So one of the questions is, who are you running into? Who are you bumping into in this season of your life? And how might God want to use you or your family, your marriage, you, your family, to bless those people? When we lived in North Carolina, we lived in, um, we rented a townhouse for five years that was in a, uh, it was one of four in a building and there were 11 buildings like that in this little townhouse complex that we lived in. And our kids at that point were in grade, in grade school, uh, grades well, like run, one through eight in the time that we lived there. And so most of the people that we ran into, we bumped shoulders with at that, I guess you bump elbows, right? You rub shoulders and you bump elbows. Anyway, you know what I mean. People we were running into were people in that age group, uh, lots of kids in the neighborhood, and so they were always in and out of our house, and we played a lot of basketball in the, uh, the parking lot out in front of our house. Uh, we had birthday parties jointly, and we, we got to engage with their, their families, with their parents. Later on, as, uh, as our kids, uh, well, at this season of life, now that our kids are grown, our kids have, have moved away, we're not running into lots of families with elementary school children anymore. That's just not who we're crossing paths with all that much. And so in this season of our lives, one of the, one of the ways we've focused on blessing our neighbors or blessing people around us is to, uh, to, join, to be part of the marriage mentoring program that we've started here at church. And I've really enjoyed that a lot, an opportunity to, not because we're perfect or have the answer to every question, but to, to mentor younger married couples. We've done some coaching around parenting, uh, we've done some premarital counseling, those kinds of things as a way to, to bless our neighbors through our relationship. But I think all three of these, all the, these things apply to all of our relationships, if you think about them. People that you're committed to, whether it's your broader family or a network of friends, I would encourage you to think about those, those groupings in these terms. How might God want to be at work? in there, in those, in those relationships. I do want to look at one passage of Scripture with you, the one that, where Jesus says the most that He does about marriage in Matthew 19. Matthew 19. Interestingly enough, if you turn to that section, uh, in my Bible, the heading says divorce. And as it turns out, Jesus gives the most extensive teaching He gives about marriage in answer to a question about divorce. And so there really isn't a systematic 
There isn't a, a chapter of systematic teaching about marriage in the, in the New Testament, and yet Jesus gives us some really helpful perspective from His voice and from His perspective on what's happening. So, I'm going to read to you from Matthew 19, the first 12 verses. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the things that He'd been talking about in chapter 18, He left Galilee in the north and went into the region of Judea, which is in the south, and then He went to the other side of the Jordan, which is in the east. So, He moved from the the northern part of Israel to the south and then across the Jordan to the east. Large crowds followed Him, and He healed them there. Some Pharisees came to test Him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, that might sound like a kind of a silly question to you as you hear it read, but there were rabbis who were teaching that. Some, there was a strain, uh, uh, strain of uh, rabbinic teaching that taught that as long as you gave your wife a certificate of divorce, and in this time it would have been really unusual for a woman to divorce her husband, but it was much more typical for a husband to do this. But as long as a husband would give her a certificate of divorce, he could divorce her. He had sort of met the letter of the law and was free to release his wife to divorce her for almost any reason. But there was another school of thought that was kind of on the whole other end of the continuum, other rabbis who taught that uh, divorce was only allowed when one spouse had been unfaithful to the other. That was the only way that uh, divorce was permissible. And so Jesus says, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two two fleshes, you might say, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Why did, in other words, why did Moses permit that? And Jesus says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. In other words, that was not the intent initially. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, basically what they said was, wow, wow, if that's, if this is the situation between husband and wife, it's better not to marry at all if the stakes are that high. And Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs, eunuchs meaning people who are, are single and celibate. There are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Well, it's pretty clear from the way Jesus talks about this that marriage is a covenant. It's a deeply serious and binding commitment. He talks about it as the joining in some mystical spiritual way, the joining of two people into one person. It's as though a new reality, a new thing comes to life, a new being comes to life, which is your marriage. And if you've been married a long time, you know that you, you don't only tend to, un- tend to yourself in your marriage, nor to just to your spouse, but you tend to your marriage. How is our relationship going? How is it growing? How is it maturing? It's as though a new, a, a lifelong uh, bond uh, becomes a new reality when, when we marry. And as we said a moment ago, that's something that we grow up into. We mature into that, that uh, new being that's created. And because it's a lifelong bond that's meant to be lifelong, it, only, it can only be ended in extreme cases, in unusual and extreme cases. So, the one that Jesus mentioned here is unfaithfulness. And He says, 
that you can only end your marriage uh, from unfaithfulness. We know from 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks there about abandonment as another reason that releases somebody from their marriage. I think the broader teaching in the New Testament also would include things like abusive relationships or where a partner is addicted and is just destroying themselves and destroying the, the relationship. But those are hopefully unusual and extreme cases. I think the church has sometimes been a little harsh with this. We've treated this as a law, and we just simply have not, uh, we've just treated divorce as simply prohibited. I understand why that is, but I think maybe sometimes we've been too harsh in confining people, often women, in really destructive situations. Yes, it becomes a wisdom issue about how much to endure, and we want to make every effort to, in those situations, to reconcile, to be constructive, and to bring about change. On the other hand, we also realize that we live in a time where we are entirely too casual about cutting our ties to people who upset us, and that's not right either. We're simply not used to persevering in the face of hardship, and it feels like we're losing that capacity as, uh, culturally to patiently work out the problems we have with other people. And unfortunately, I think that, that undermines our marriages as well. So, on the one hand, I think as followers of Jesus, we value, we want to value marriage highly. We work hard and we work patient, hope patiently for reconciliation wherever that's possible. But on the other hand, I think we also want to extend grace and protection to people who are being destroyed in such a relationship, who are enduring, enduring unrelenting pain and mistreatment. And so we walk together, hopefully with, with challenge and with grace as we navigate what this is like. Paul Tripp, who is a pastor and a marriage counselor, has a book about marriage that I think is, has a kind of a funny title. It's called, What Did You Expect? What Did You Expect? He says in there, I'm not going to talk all about what he says, but in there he says that marriage, from his perspective, is just a long-term exercise in gardening. It's like gardening. And when, he, when I read his explanation, I thought, you know, this is true of our, all of our close relationships. He says that close relationships, including marriage, take regular, diligent attention. Our gardens and our marriages, our close friendships, take a willingness to water and feed them regularly, to invest regularly in them, to a, a willingness to pull weeds. You know, you're not going to have a great garden if you're not willing to pull weeds. The same is true of our relationships, being willing to remove harmful and to remove and resolve harmful things. We also, with our gardens, notice when something's not working, when a plant isn't doing well. We prune wilted flowers. We deadhead flowers. We also deadhead flowers. I think the same thing is true in our, in our relationships, in our marriages. We want to drop bad habits, change things that aren't working. There are no shortcuts. When you drive by a house that's surrounded by a gorgeous display of flowers and a variety of colors and kinds, you realize that you're looking at the results of a lot of careful work. A display like this doesn't happen when so, just in a, in a day. In other words, you, don't, you need more than one day's investment for something like this to happen. This is the result of somebody tending on a very regular basis, watering, feeding, pulling weeds, deadheading the dead flowers and taking off the brown ones. We don't expect our gardens to look like that by accident. I realized as I was thinking about this this morning that we have uh, Amish, an Amish family on our street, and for them, some of their work of the week, of the day, is to tend to that garden, and that garden, is a, it's, it's gorgeous. 
It's a vegetable garden, but they have flowers around the issue. But it's gorgeous. And our, our garden is nice, but it's not gorgeous because we have other work that we do, and we, we kind of tend to ours occasionally. But I know that when I look at theirs, I don't, um, I don't think it happens. I, I realize that they put a lot more work into it than I have. I'll just say it that way. I realize that mine could look that way if I were as diligent as they are. So the question is, why do we expect our marriages to blossom beautifully without any particular care or attention to each other? Paul Tripp says that perhaps the most fundamental sin we all make, or at least mistake that we all make in our marriages or our close friendships is the sin of inattention, of neglect, of taking the other person for granted. So carry this image with you as you resolve not to do that in your marriages as you go from this morning. I want to leave you with a few questions to reflect on, and then we'll move into a time of um, celebrating communion together. Whether you're married or single, the first question that comes back to this list of three, this up in and out focus, are you surrendered to Jesus as a person? Or are you surrendered to Jesus as a couple? Have you ever, as a, as a husband and wife, sat down together and said, we want to surrender our marriage to the Lordship of Jesus? Might be something you want to, if you haven't done that recently, you might want to have that conversation. Another question here is, have you been looking for marriage either as a future possibility for yourself or someone who's already married? Have you been looking for fulfillment from your marriage that can only come from God Himself? Yes, God gives us each other in a wonderful way, but there's a depth of, of uh, satisfaction that can only come from being grounded in a surrender to Christ. Maybe there's wrongdoing, sin in your life that you need to confess and turn away from that's harming your marriage. Maybe it's sin between you that you need to resolve. But ask yourself this question, have I, am I up to date in my surrender to Jesus? Second question, are your relationships in good shape? The connection piece here, is your marriage relationship in good, play, good shape? Or is there a, a place in which you need to extend or ask for forgiveness? If you're married, I want to urge you to be willing to talk about whatever the uncomfortable subject is that you've been avoiding conversation around. The uncomfortable subject or situation or habit or that thing that happened that we haven't really talked through yet. I'm going to invite you to, in God's timing, to talk about that and to bring it to the light. Another question here, if you're married, is are there steps that you need to take to give higher priority to your marriage or to your spouse than you have? I know we sometimes we get caught up and distracted by other priorities in our lives, and our focus on our marriages can, can fade. This is a chance for you to re reconsider that. And finally, how are you blessing your neighbors or the people around you through your marriage, or how could you be doing that if you're not? Is there anything that comes to mind as you think about that this morning in a fresh way, that you could be blessing your neighbors together as a couple or maybe if you're single, in partnership with other people, with friends that you walk closely with. So I invite you to carry that visual image of that garden that's just flourishing and doing really well and carry these questions with you as you think about surrendering our, our marriages and our close relationships to the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank You for the ways that You have ordered our lives, the ways that You have structured our journeys for us so that we walk together and that we walk in surrender to You. 
a wonderful rhythm of life. Lord, I pray that You would give us the courage to respond to Your invitation to take the next, whatever the next step is, to get back to that kind of following of You and that kind of honoring of our commitments to each other. And Lord, I also ask You to uh, make us an even more effective, more powerful blessing to the people around us, to our neighbors, so that You can work through us, not just for our own sakes, but for the sake of the people around us. We thank you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.